Welcome to the Fader interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, editorial director of the Fader. Dan Behar has spent the past quarter century articulating the thoughts of surrealists, nihilists, and aphorists. From his 1996 debut as Destroyer, Will Build Them a Golden Bridge, the title of which is an allusion to Tolstoy, through the 2011 breakthrough Kaput, up to 2020's masterful Have We Met, the Vancouver-based solo artist has explored the fringes of syntax just as much as he has the outer limits of sophistopop and soft rock. His protagonists have, like erudite barflies at the end of a night, been difficult to fully comprehend, and they've often disappeared as soon as they've arrived. Labyrinthitis, Destroyer's 13th album, is a slightly different proposition. Here there is a persistent voice, one that is, by Behar's own admission, petty and villainous. This character wishes ill on others, at one point openly insisting that the person at the other end of the conversation is going to suffer. It's made all the stranger by Behar's compositions. They are, as ever, engrossing, melodic and grandiose. But they're also insistent and pulsating, a hangover from his early idea of writing a relentless techno album inspired by Cher. Labyrinthitis is, as its title suggests, pretty disorienting, and it's proof that the man behind it has no shortage of new roads to explore. Shortly before the album's release, I caught up with Behar to talk about that villain in his songs, how his drive towards the gallows mirrors that of both Scott Walker and Tom Waits, and his frustrating inability to break out of his craft. You're in Toronto at the moment, right? I am, yeah. What are you doing up there? I come here a lot. I have a lot of family here. At least a couple times a year we come out. I'm interested in that because you have this pretty attritional relationship with Vancouver. You obviously love it, but would it be fair to say that you've struggled to find romance in Vancouver? If you mean, is it difficult to romanticize the city Vancouver, then yes. I feel like that's a very natural struggle. Even the most Vancouver diehards who simply can't get enough of the mountains and the ocean and the rainforest would be hard pressed to say it's like a, an easy place to mythologize or to romanticize, partially because it's obsession with erasing its own history, which is you know key to any kind of myth-making or romanticizing, really. So do you find it different further east do you find it different in toronto because i've i've struggled to find the romance of toronto as well yeah don't no don't get me wrong this is not going to be a pitch for toronto god no <laughs> i you know actually i'm the city grows on me i i'm pretty new to it really it's only in the last really 15 years that i've been coming here much aside from just like little blips to play shows yeah and i like it in my young adulthood, I was definitely programmed to completely disregard it and mock it. Oh, congratulations on Labyrinthitis. Oh, thanks. I want to take a slightly strange route into this record by talking about Mac the Knife. I remember reading an interview with you years ago where you described it as a very important protest song that's always been perceived as a goofy murder ballad. And I, and I had done the same. I'd always dismissed it. But the first time I really listened to it was the Sinatra version. It was after that interview. And I found it just utterly sort of jarring and compelling. I think there's a villain at work in that song who, despite his sort of apparent bloodlust, ends up sounding quite romantic. 
Is it fair to say that you found yourself drawn to a similar type of character on Labyrinthitis? I haven't thought about Mac the Knife in a long time. It's funny, but I think that in that stretch between Kaput and Poison Season, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Probably A, because I was listening to a lot of jazz standards at the time. That's kind of one. It's kind of on the what is probably seen as the goofier end of that. And maybe I found an old tape of Three Penny Opera. I think I stumbled on like some older versions that have more kind of faithful and kind of gnarlier translations, more true to maybe the original text and the kind of uh, softened adult contemporary versions that hit it big in the States in the 50s, 60s. There are a couple songs on Poison Season where I was like, where's where's this voice coming from? Because this is kind of unnerving that it I slip into it in a kind of very natural way. And it's not like a grand villain. It's like a despicable and petty villain. Because from what I recall of the murderer described in, in Mac the Knife, he's just the worst of the worst. But for some reason, the world in which he runs is enticing. Maybe that's the dissonance between the words and the music. And that's how it has always worked in songs where the words can say something quite vile, but the music envelops them, you know, in some kind of parade, some kind of dark parade that we follow. I feel like I had that voice going on a couple songs in Poison Season. And for some reason, I don't know why, but part of the reason why I can't get my head around this new record is that I think that voice is working over time on labyrinthitis like at least half the record seems to involve a narrator that is mean vindictive bitter not in a melancholic way but in a way that's taking pleasure in the world's pain and the suffering of others a petty villain that says i told you so a lot at the worst moments a narrator that wants to make children cry just someone who's really into punching below their weight you know yeah you really can only evade this narrator for so long on this record. When you think that there's levity in the lyrics, you keep turning corners into this character without expecting to. Yeah, I really think that aside from the first song, which is a holdover from Have We Met, and it's kind of a dreamy song and a plaintive song. And aside from the very last song called The Last Song, which is me, just me and a guitar, and which I put on the record at the very last second, it purely because I wanted some kind of tonic, you know, I wanted like a palate cleanser. I couldn't leave things off with this vague sense of menace. And then John's song, which is the instrumental in the middle, the title track. And those are the kind of three breathers that you get from this. Otherwise, I mean, it, in a lot of ways, it's a really fun record. It's the most upbeat Destroyer album, I think, ever uh, in some ways. But if you get close to, to the kind of heart of what's being said, it's kind of a relentlessly, I don't know, just brittle and in a minor key.
It is. It's an extremely upbeat album. I don't know how tongue-in-cheek you meant this, but Cher was one reference point I know that you brought up. That was 100% serious. Um, I wasn't expecting to start work with John again. I thought he had maybe closed a chapter on his life where he dives and loses himself in these sonic sounds, like these soundscapes, and then comes up for air months later. But when he started bugging me for music, that was one of the earliest conversations was kind of like a high energy, relentless version of techno music, almost just like a side of four on the floor beats and then like turn it over and then another side of four on the floor beats. It it didn't turn out that way, obviously, but some of the, some of the songs definitely I envisioned as just straight ahead club music. You've talked before about your relationship to art being that you want to feel confounded. And that that might be a better approach for people to listen to your music, just being confounded by something, finding that sort of confusion and that dissonance and that disagreement between two elements. Is that intentional? I mean, my first thing that I want is kind of worrisome because the first thing that I want is just to be emotionally crushed in some sense. I just want to come stumble upon an amazing vista, you know, especially in music which is you have such an immediate emotional reaction, or most of us do generally. It's hard to not want that. But what seems to keep me going in the studio and in like the actual creation of this stuff is, yeah, like stuff that doesn't necessarily talk to to each other, but then for some reason, in at least in moments, really works and creates this third thing that was completely unexpected, you know? Sometimes I worry that it's like the novelty of the surprise of the novelty of the discovery is kind of the thing that I'm into. Not that that's bad, but when you use the word novelty, it automatically makes you think that you're involved in something that's not deep. I guess maybe novelty is not the good word, but I definitely like to be shocked. I like to find my voice in really strange, sometimes hostile, sonic situations. Labyrinthitis, the album is a really good example of that, probably pushed to a certain extreme whether it's the second half of the song June, whether it's the entirety of the song Tintoretto, it's for you. Just stuff that I would never foresee in a million years. And once it's happening before my eyes, I'm just like, I can't help but follow it, even though sometimes I think I'm just following it into a disaster, you know? Let's talk a little about June, this sort of antagonistic character that's coming out more on this album. I'm curious about how you think that influences your delivery. And on June, Particularly a song like June, I think could be an interesting case study for that because you have, in the last three minutes of that song, you have nothing else to fall back on. You don't have melody to fall back on. It's entirely your cadence and your tone. How much do you have to think about, I mean, almost in a sort of actorly kind of way, think about the way that you're delivering these lines when you're inhabiting this certainly difficult character? Part of me didn't think about it very much because I think if I had, I would have frozen because the idea of doing something that's spoken word or maybe even vaguely inspired by hip hop, just like stuff that I have no experience with at this point, I automatically just assume that I'm gonna fall flat on my face and it's gonna be a total embarrassment and just like the one in a series of middle-aged nightmares that usually happens with singers once they get older. What I discovered though with June was because A, that was a three minute song and then John just whipped up this kind of incredible three minute outro that needed something over it. And once I got over 
like the initial shock of my just me speaking things, I discovered that it came really naturally to me and in fact became one of the more pleasurable experiences of recording this album. Even if I just whipped off, I know I whipped off like eight and they're all just variations. I did it probably over the course of 25 minutes, you know, a couple whiskeys. And I think John just kept the first one, sounded like the most natural. Uh, it wasn't my favorite piece of writing, but it definitely had the feeling that I was kind of speaking to myself in real time, which was kind of a nice thing. And I think the freedom of not having to sing melodies, especially the first half of June being like a very sing-songy, kind of jaunty number melodically, peppered with questionable lines about, you know, me just insulting snowmen and stuff like that, uh, or snow angels. The writing for the second half of June, you know, it's the kind of stuff I have reams of. It's like the stuff that the world never sees, but comes really naturally to me. But I don't know how to stick that stuff in songs. I don't really know how to sing it. Just finding that this kind of questionable narrator, this broadcaster, that voice came pretty, pretty easy to me in a way that was surprising and made me think, oh, maybe this is something I would like to explore more. I haven't because I haven't written a single song since doing the last song. But every Destroyer album seems to have one or two moments that seem like a way forward for me. And I would say that even though it could lead down some pretty dicey roads that the second half of June, when it was finally said and done, felt like this could be something I could explore more, you know? So something where you're putting the weight of drama really on your cadence and your delivery, much more so than melody. I feel like it's been going in that direction, even though I haven't wanted to fess up to that because songs is all I know and all I've done with my life for pretty much my entire adult life. But my aversion to chords, my aversion to song structure, my aversion to touching an instrument, <laughs> it all kind of is it's all kind of leading there. I don't really know what there looks like, but it's really diction and cadence most is kind of what is at the forefront of my mind for the last few years. You know, unfortunately, you can be an amazing singer and still play a lot with diction and cadence. Like Billie Holiday, say, it's like a master of diction. But I'm not a master of tone, you know. Just me becoming someone who recites things over insane sonic backdrops is something I could explore. Oh, Aggie, your beating heart was a carriage made of gold. How the arithmetic of this guitar melts your heart is beyond me. I say beyond me, I mean beyond me. Love you, I barely know you. It goes to show who really knows what love is. The branches, the breeze, the roiling seas, none of it seems worth mentioning. Though I'm in the process of figuring it out, even if it's elementary. Scrapyard angel, wings of brass, ash, a river called trash. And speaking of life, like this is what life's like. I don't know why I keep coming back to this. This is slightly outlandish. Everything that you've said there and something that sort of played on me the more I listened to the album, that there's something conceptually here, particularly with this kind of antagonistic narrator, that seems like you're approaching a similar world to the one that Scott Walker was approaching at a certain point in his career, and then going in almost the opposite direction with the way that you're dealing with that. So where he went grandiose with his voice and then the, the melodies became more stretched out and often evil sounding, you've gone 
you know, entirely towards almost rap on that song. And then these like very bright melodies all to express often similar sort of almost apocalyptic sentiments. Yeah. It's interesting with him, his obsessions with high modernism just reached such a fever pitch by the end of his life. And a lot of his hangups, which seemed to be 20th century ones, which, you know, still dealing with like, well, I would say fascism and totalitarianism were things that he thought about a lot, but also on a very personal level. I mean, I say those are 20th century hangups, but we've discovered those aren't. It's weird how they kind of also started to collapse into like strange gags and fart jokes and things like that. Like weird things really crept into his songs towards the end. Also the the way that he questioned his own instrument, which was his voice, which we all know was just so incredible. He was very conscious of not creating moments of ease with his voice because he has such a naturally, like this incredible tool at his disposal, which more often than not, he wanted to strangle, you know, uh, and really like test. And I don't think I, obviously I can't sing like that, even though, and I, but I've, gone through phases of being kind of obsessed with his project and wondering why it speaks so much to me. You know, there's just like uh, such a mix of like the romantic and the doomsday and what he does. I don't know as I get older and I do more of these destroyer songs, if it's really going in that direction. I do think that the labyrinthitis has a lot of gags in it. <laughs> more, more. More than any other Destroyer record, there seems to be a lot of, I'm just cracking wise a lot, a lot of goofball jokes, which I don't know if that's an attack on the listener or if that's an attack on myself. That's something I have noticed happens with songwriters as they get older. They get become more fearless with that kind of stuff, uh, less censored. You know, someone like Leonard Cohen comes to mind. There's just a, a lot of a lot of one-liners and a lot of like, a lot of jokes. Jokes with like, death looming over one shoulder. I don't know what you call that style of joke. Is that called gallows humor, maybe? I'm not sure. Well, I mean, specifically the word gallows humor, I would apply to somebody else who you've talked about recently, which is Tom Waits. Right, yeah. In terms of like a direction from that sort of, I mean, really starting as a smart ass and a wisecracker and a barfly, and then this descent into actually being at the gallows in half of his songs. Yeah, I like that trajectory. It's strange because Tom Waits, I don't know if I said this in some other interview, was like someone I really haven't thought about at all, but for some reason, the last couple of years, his pose, both his 70s pose of like dude at the piano, like the barfly dude at the piano, cracking wise, kind of like beatnik Timpan Alley, which, you know, I wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole, you know, 20 years ago. It's been really speaking to me. And not only that, but the trajectory that you just spoke of. Yeah, like just this grizzled, beaten down, almost songs written and sung from a box in the ground or like some some chamber where you're just locked up, <laughs> like a barely human voice. And I, I don't know what about that has started to really appeal to me in my old age, but it definitely, definitely has. I don't know if labyrinthitis reflects that, but... I feel like it's in the songs, even if I didn't realize that it was there. There are a couple of moments on this album where you can really hear sort of the death of the narrator briefly. Do you think that, that that's you following that trajectory towards the gallows? So not quite so literally, but do you think that that's your instinct? Or do you think that maybe there's a reflection of the world around you? I mean, this is an album you conceived of in and started plotting out in the summer of 2020, which is... A, 
pretty apocalyptic time. Uh, not that things have improved particularly since. Or do you do you bristle at that notion? Do you find the idea of you know reflecting all of that a little bit too simple? I mean, I'm definitely in the world still. You know, I don't think I sound like a caged panther or anything, just pacing back and forth. But at the same time, the music is very outward reaching. You know, I feel like it's music to be played loud, and that desires public spaces, even if the narrator doesn't go along with that you know you think the narrator wants to be alone i don't i don't know but i know that sometimes like uh, there's a song called suffer on the album really pictured that as a techno song because I feel like it's easier to be laid back and slightly awry and slightly villainous in club music but it turned into this kind of like 90s Glastonbury sounding song it's kind of like celebratory and joyous in its way and you can just it's just like you can kind of picture you know people drunkenly throwing themselves around to it or even singing along to it and there's parts of the song where it's just like bass. They're just, uh, they're supposed to be unpleasant. So the music, the space between the music and the lyrics, it becomes filled with like really questionable intent, I guess. And that's something I never saw coming, but it should be interesting when it comes time to sing that song live. Should we actually play it live? It's taken on a life of its own and probably in my mind has kind of become far more evil than I ever expected it would be. The way you're speaking about this, it seems almost as if your songwriting process is borderline subconscious, almost unconscious. Like you're staring at a lyric sheet and going, oh wow, the narrator in this is, is really doing something. Like when do you start realizing, for example, that this voice is, is coming out in this process? I feel like I'm doing that more and more discussing this record than I ever have, probably because I'm trying to distance myself for some reason from the song somehow, because what I really want to be doing is capturing how the light hits the water perfectly in melody and in lyric. My vision of myself is way more Zen, you know, just like drunken Buddhist monk describing the leaf as it falls to the ground. And I'm not currently doing that. In fact, labyrinthitis, I feel, couldn't be more opposite. But when you picture yourself aging gracefully in song, these are the kind of images that I have not, and it's not June, it's not Tintoretto's for you, it's not Suffer, it's not It Takes a Thief. But I don't question it because it is very unconscious. It's not me writing, it's me just muttering things to myself. For the most part, it's just my mutterings that I capture in real time and then turn into songs, you know? The only thing that sounds like a bunch of writing that I did and then tried to apply to music would be the spoken word kind of rapping part of June. But everything else is just this kind of spew that comes out of me. And I, I don't direct it. And I am getting worse and worse at predicting it. Did you 
stretcher is for you The ceiling's on fire And the contract is binding your little one sick At the sight, insert three syllables here at night They drop you from a great height into a war That you were beyond You brought up Tintoretto a couple of times. The very fact that that's what you chose as a single that announced the album, it's probably the most challenging sonically. It's not not the easiest song on the album. It's not what a record label, if given the choice, would say this will bring people in. Yeah, I'm kind of one of, I should be firing my record labels right now just for having let me do that. In retrospect, I don't know who likes that song aside from maybe the producer and uh, I really like the song, don't get me wrong, but at every level, it barely scans as a, a typical destroyer song. It's not the kind of music I, you know, I listen to like Bill Evans and stuff. I don't put on music that sounds like Tintoretto, it's for you. That being said, I like the cackle, that subject matter, which is like someone who's just kind of cackling along, basically a really lame, petty version of the Grim Reaper, telling someone that their time's up over and over again. It's kind of cool. And the music is so out, out there as far for me that I was just like, this is too, too crazy of a world not to present. I feel like what I like, like for instance, that song, it's a very like complete statement, even if the statement itself is one that I find confusing or not even one that like musically I normally gravitate towards. It has like a strong vision behind it. The kind of sonic world that John created and the parts that the band came up with and then whatever force of the vocal has in the words. And so I felt safe in, to, in steering into that because it seemed airtight, even if it's airtight in an unpleasant way. And it just seemed also like something we'd never done before, which at this point seems strange, you know, it's it kind of surprising to still be stumbling on terrain that is uncharted for us at this point. So the fact that a sound or like an atmosphere comes out of nowhere, I got swept up in it. That being said, I, because I have no work ethic and no real, no real like practice, it would maybe be really good for me just to go somewhere and have a, a, make a conscious decision to write some sort of meditative work as I stare out the window at the lake, because that scares the shit out of me. Sitting down, trying to come up with something and coming up with nothing is like a fear that I know has the power to like stop me in my tracks. And to somehow work through that is a way that I don't even know how people do it, but I know they do. So I'm sure that there would be something that good, something good would come out of that, as opposed to me just being like swept up in like some sort of ghoulishness. <laughs> ghoulishness being how I describe that song. Do you think that's why you haven't written since the last song? I mean, I'm writing way slower these days, and I'm only really capable of doing one thing at a time. So. I seem to start writing stuff. And then when I can sing a song from beginning to end a cappella, I will like concede to the to the fact that maybe I need some form of chord structures for that song. And then, you know, I'll either start this kind of weird back and forth with John that I've done with the last couple albums, or I'll present the songs to the band where we to try and do a record like Poison Season again. And then, you know, we make the record. I stew about the record. We learn to actually play the songs and we go and play them in front of people and we travel around and do that. 
And when it's all over, then I seem to start thinking about writing things again. I do daydream about getting off that treadmill, about just playing piano for piano's sake, writing things that I like without having in the back of my head of how does this fit in with music? How would this work as a song? How can I like pile drive this into a song? I like the idea of having like some kind of schedule uh, that structures my day as opposed to just having like kind of words just land on, land on me every once in a while. And if I like them, I'll record them. So we'll see. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. You get to the end of an album and more and more of the last few records, you can't picture writing another song and then you just do. But, you know, hopefully it's changing or it's morphing all the time. You described the last song as like a tonic, like a palate cleanser. And the implication there being maybe that you're thinking about your audience or, or was that more for you? I think it was for me. I think I was feeling really lost inside the album. It was like the more I was feeling the title Labyrinthitis, I feel like I was truly disoriented inside of it in a way that I really liked and found exciting, but I found it also exhausting. My antidote, which I didn't see coming because I, I didn't sit down and write the last song. I just kind of, it, it just kind of came. One clue is that I sat down and I picked up the acoustic guitar, which is something that I've probably done three times in the last 10 years. I don't touch it to write songs. I don't touch it in general. But it's still linked to some kind of very primeval version of myself, the, the version of myself that first started doing this when I was 22. It's a solemn song, but it's kind of it turns into a bit of a s- solemn sing-along number at the end. Some people thought that that song was 20 years old or 25 years old when they first heard it. It's not, but it's like reaching back into a part of me that I discover every few years is still there. And it, you know, kind of sounds a little bit like me serenading myself. I, I desperately needed some form of punctuation for the album. I don't need a closure necessarily, but I needed, I don't know, it just needed the grounding and it, it needed a, a moment. It needed something reflective. It needed uh, just some kind of space where you just like exhale. And that was kind of what that song was for me. You get up, you stand up, you pull your head on out of nooses. You don't know what the news says on any given day. You fake say hello, and you fake say goodbye. You point your head up at the sky and say, oh, I look at the sun. What is that part of you that you're speaking to, other than a person who plays the acoustic guitar quite frequently? You know, on a very practical level, it's someone who is a professional ditty writer. It's not some kind of grand conceptual work, sonically or lyrically, you know. It's just, I pick up the guitar and I wrote this little song and here's my little song. It's kind of anti-June in a lot of ways. And it's kind of a reminder to myself that that's what I do. And it seems hemmed in and it seems troublesome but that's still the case. That's what I do. And the rest of it is kind of me playing ringmaster in a way that it's a lot more desperate and a lot more like I get lost. I lose track of what things are supposed to be. I cross my fingers and hope for the best. I listen to a lot of other voices and I get excited about them, but I lose my way. And so it was just nice to find myself 
squarely at the end of the record, even if it's in this incredibly modest way. And in, also th- lyrically, the song is a bit of a pep talk, you know, just get through another day. You don't sound entirely satisfied with the pep talk you've given yourself there. Not in the least, yeah. I mean, my delusions of grandeur are such it's going to take more than the last song to talk me down from the ledge, you know. The craft that I know, which is slinging words at mel- like at melodies and chords, and then what I dream about, which is just a way, way bigger canvas than that. I thought maybe at this point, this many records in with me turning 50 this year and having written 100, I thought maybe I would have reconciled all this by now. So the fact that it's less reconciled than ever is kind of like dizzying to me or disconcerting, but also exciting, I guess. Well, that seems like a appropriately bittersweet place to, to leave things then. Possibly, yes. I really appreciate you making time to talk to us. Thank you. Thanks. That was Dan Behar of Destroyer talking to The Fader. Destroyer's new album, Labyrinthitis, is out now via Merge. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. If you like listening to The Fader, good news. We're now on the live radio app AMP. Download it from the App Store and check out our shows with the access code FaderOnAMP. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.